I lived my first 18 and a half years in a white colonial in the idyllic town of Newton, Massachusetts. Newton is the garden city, statistically the safest place in America. Only one murder in my entire lifetime. It is a beautiful old town, where the spring light rests on yards tangerine orange and violet pansy beds, on marigolds, sugar maples, crab apple trees, white houses, brick houses clutched in curled fingers of Dutch ivy. I never had to move, was never shaken or uprooted. My parents were married happily. My neighborhood was wealthy, sidewalks clean. My mother and father both went to Harvard Law School. They were accomplished Boston lawyers. We had plenty of money. I had two older brothers. I was the baby of the family. No one I'd ever loved had died. I was extremely close to my mother, and the people who lived on the streets around our house would have recognized me as the little girl who was always walking with her mom. We walked together several evenings a week, past Whole Foods Market and the Little League Field, Mason Rice Elementary, and the Glass Still Lake. The suburban night was quiet and very dark. Tranquil crystal lake gleaming in street lamps, decaying damp leaves slippery on the sidewalks snaking its rim. The waterfront mansions all glowed the same soft yellow. We walked side by side over roots pushing through the concrete sidewalk, talking almost exclusively about me. I'd tell her how my day was, the homework I had to do, upcoming tests, goals, even college. Our evening stroll was three to seven miles. When we crossed the main streets, we held hands. I loved it. Later, when we were back, my father would come home. Usually, I'd be alone at the kitchen table, eating a dinner my mother had made just for me. Often, she made a different dinner for each of us, whatever we said we wanted. During the day, she'd call each of us to ask. My father didn't talk to me about myself like my mother did. Some days he'd arrive back home and say, Debbie, tell me something brilliant. No matter what I said, he'd declare to my mom, she's a genius. I'd feel giddy, drunk with the security of love. It thrilled me when he called me art smart and encouraged the silly stories I wrote. But other nights I'd place myself in an old wooden kitchen chair waiting for him to come home. And when he'd come, I'd say, Dad. He'd say, hello, and walk through the room, past me, up the stairs. Each step would creak beneath his weight. I could never predict his mood, but I'd always hope it would be good and he'd look at me and kiss me, request a kiss back, want my love, want me. Hidden in his home office, whitewashed wood door shut, he'd write, by the time I was in high school, he'd written 13 sprawling books, his thickest 2,600 single-spaced pages. He also sometimes played guitar up there, his Gibson acoustic, a lovely sunburst model to replace the one stolen from his Dodge when he was 21 and newly married to my mom. On nights when my father was good, about three or four nights a week, he would go on an exercise machine he had in his room, we all called the ski machine, for an hour. It was very old and loud, wooden with two old skis sliding on metal tracks. As he worked out, Dylan, or sometimes Springsteen, blasted from his bedroom speakers, singing, you're a big girl now, singing songs he loved and 
that I grew to love. So loud, his music played in every room. He told me he had every single song Dylan ever recorded. Whenever anyone asked me what music I liked best, I'd answer, the music of my father's generation. I always desperately wanted him to see me. Freshman year, I joined Newton South High School's Nordic ski team. But just as I began to get good and score in races, dad threw the ski machine away, replaced by a soundless treadmill. He paid much more attention to my brother Jacob, who was five years older, popular, a dedicated baseball player. My father had always been a poor athlete, introverted and nerdy. He was small and wore thick glasses. My mom used to say, I'm raising Debbie. Bruce has Jacob. <laughs>